Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 30th of September 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, just in time delivery. Uh, absolutely. Now, we're going to start off with uh, Tobias Elwood, who was speaking in the House of Commons. Uh, this has been doing the rounds of social media, so you may have seen it, but I just want to, to break it down and actually uh, have, a, have a think about what he's, what he's said here. So uh, let's have a listen to the introduction. Madam Deputy Speaker, I'd like to focus on the, uh, the rollout of a vaccine, which may seem a little premature given we are contemplating a second wave of the pandemic and indeed further economic intervention. But a vaccine is potentially six months away. China is already mass producing a product. It's got another 10 others online as well. Oxford is heading into its phase three tests with tens of thousands of people being tested, as are other institutions around the globe. But the scale and complexity of this challenge is up there with the D-Day landings and indeed Dunkirk. So that's Tobias Elwood, MP, who we are going to be calling uh, Lieutenant Com uh, Colonel Tobias El Elwood, because of course he is an MP, but he's also a reservist for 77 Brigade, yeah. uh, and that makes him a propagandist. Um, so uh, what else did he have to say? He went on to say that the, the mass vaccine rollout is enormous responsibility. Uh, planning must start immediately. Uh, he said that uh, I've written to the Prime Minister recommending that he consider calling on the Ministry of Defence to establish a small task force uh, led by a senior empowered voice of authority. And in brackets, we've got what he was thinking there. Me, 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 let it be me. Uh, I absolutely believe that's what he was hinting at. Uh, and uh, he said, when, we, uh, when you pause to consider what's involved, the logistics of shifting millions of refrigerated vaccines across the country, because, Brian, there are no logistics companies around. There's no refrigerated logistics companies around. They're not shifting huge quantities of food or, or other uh, you know, biodegradable material around uh, on a regular basis, are they? Um, I'll pause and say... The irony of, of this is, is that military over recent years have been saying that the military need to learn from the private sector in how to conduct logistics, because, of course, across the country every day, as you're indicating, uh, the big supermarkets in particular moving thousands and thousands of tonnes of products in, in a way that the military has not been has not done since the Second World War, possibly the Korean War. So what he's saying is another twist on, on the truth, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. And uh, he went on to say, uh, developing a national database to track progress and issue the vaccination certificates. So we need the military uh, to do this, to develop a national database to track progress uh, and issue vaccination certificates. Now, he said that as if it was nothing. Uh, he, you know, nobody has actually asked uh, about this issue of vaccination certificates. Uh, he was implying that it's already a done deal, uh, but we actually only need we need the military to help uh, roll out vaccination certificates. Um, I'm not aware of any sort of national conversation about whether we need those. Uh, but he, he went on to say this, uh, which will probably have to be internationally recognized in order to allow travel. Um, so, Brian, we're getting a, a very well, clear if we say that Lieutenant Colonel Tobias Elwood represents the deep state, which I believe he, he does. Um, we're getting a pretty clear picture here of what uh, the deep state is expecting um, as, as we uh, progress through this alleged pandemic. Um, Mike, I said to you earlier this morning that, in my opinion, this is a coup. We're actually looking at a coup in progress in this country. There are some MPs now just starting to wake up and say, we're not, even get, we're not even getting debates in Westminster. There are some MPs saying, well, hang on a minute, you're not going to lock the country down again until there's been debate in Westminster. Now we've got this man, you've called him a propagandist, but it's worse than that, Mike, because this is propaganda being conducted through the British Army, through the military, and now it's being brought back into government with him sort of like some little schoolboy saying, me, me, headmaster, choose me in order to, to run what should be, if, if, if this was required, um, he's suggesting that this is now supplied and organised by the military. This is, un, I'm not allowed to use that phrase, am I? I'm going to use it again. Unbelievably dangerous because 
we are now looking at the military being brought into control of the country. This is a coup. Um, so he went on to say, uh, now with the coordination of Whitehall departments, local authorities, the private sector, policing and security, as well as the military support to consider. And now your comment about it being a coup, of course, what's he talking about here? He's talking about the fusion doctrine. This coup began actually quite a long time ago. Um, it was announced uh, through the uh, various defence reviews um, and uh, it was announced in 2018 that the, that the government would be pursuing this fusion doctrine. It was announced under the auspices of the Theresa May regime. Uh, but of course, that policy has not come from Theresa May herself or her government. It's come from Mark Sedwell and the people in the cabinet office around him. Um, so we're talking about coordination. Just think about this. When we think about fascism of, in the, in the uh, Mussolini sense, for example, uh, the coordination of Whitehall departments, local authorities, the private sector, policing, security, as well as military support. And when we're talking about security, of course, we're talking about security services there. Um, this, is, this is merging these things together to a degree that is unprecedented historically unprecedented and immensely dangerous because we don't know we a uk column i think has been the lead questioner on this who is actually running the country it's quite clear that it's not being run via the conservative party the country's not being run by boris johnson you've mentioned the deep state we're into the deep state but this is a coup who is now controlling britain we don't know um, he goes on uh, the biggest challenge will be managing the transition period up potentially up to a year now of course he's not talking about brexit here he's talking about a transition period with respect to vaccination uh, because he went on then to say with parts of our when parts of our society are liberated from covid 19 and uh, would like to seek a return to normality uh, and those who have yet to be vaccinated but are still subject to continued social distancing rules. And he went on to talk about uh, priorities, who would get the vaccines first, NHS workers, teachers, and so on. Uh, but clearly what is being built here, Brian, is uh, the, the, a, a demand for vaccination because of course, some people who have been lucky enough in inverted commas to get the vaccine uh, will be allowed to get on with their normal lives to some degree or to a greater degree. Uh, and those who have not been vaccinated will be continuing to go through this lockdown sh uh, shenanigans that we're seeing totally chaotic, not able to go to work, not allowed to leave their local areas, not allowed to go to the pub and so on. So this is going to be if, if, if what he's proposing here can, goes on is going to be utterly divisive. Well, well that, that's a given, Mike, because the aim is to divide the country because the policy, the underlying policy is divide and rule. Uh, chaos in the country, antagonism between groups, people at each other's throats, people confused. That is, uh, that is clearly the agenda. And why do you do that? Because when the nation is in that state, you can control the nation. So Tobias Elwood, very, very dangerous man here. Uh, in the chat box, somebody has said, who's actually controlling him? And I think that's a very interesting question. He's not the, going to be the leader. He's the spokesperson. But clearly he knows what's coming. Well, he's not the leader yet, but I think he wants to be. Well, uh, well I'm going to say, <laughs> yes, all right. Uh, so he said, uh, the West was slow to understand the impact of this pandemic, the pace at which it moved through society and its lethality. Well, we'll be talking a little bit more about its lethality a little bit later. Um, but uh, this is his entire approach here is based on the notion that of its lethality we would argue that it doesn't have one um, not in the sense that he means anyway so let's task the ministry of defense now he said let's appoint a leader to plan prepare for this complex and critical national project and it was obvious that he was envisioning envisioning himself in this role uh, the, the new dictator. Well, he put on a new school blazer, hadn't he? So he's little boy blue here with a very smart suit and his matching tie and he's looking very prim and proper. He's a proper army officer in his opin opinion, but of course he's not. He's operating as a propagandist. But yeah, this is very immature stuff that we're watching. Uh, and I think that's um, part of the danger of these people. So uh, demands from people within the Houses of Commons to, House of Commons to bring 
uh, more military involvement. Uh, we made the point that Boris had announced more military involvement uh, last week when he gave his address to the nation, uh, that the fact that uh, Birmingham was intending to call in the army to support door-to-door -door COVID-19 testing in their hotspots, uh, and the fact that uh, this was related to the drop and collect service. Um, so the military coming onto the streets in a face-to-face -face role. Um, well, there's some interesting stuff going on. Uh, and if we head across the water to Ireland, uh, well, first of all, let's just mention this, uh, because this tweet uh, was pushed out uh, yesterday morning uh, saying United Nations military vehicles shipped into Cork at seven o'clock this morning. And as we see this uh, person driving off the uh, off the boat at uh, Cork Harbour in the uh, in the deep uh, uh, jetty there, um, we see a whole raft of UN vehicles. Now, we've got to ask what this is about, um, because, of course, UN, the UN doesn't have a military. It doesn't have a police force. The way that it works is that uh, uh, national member states uh, donate. Well, they don't really donate because they get paid for it, uh, but they give uh, services to the United Nations for peacekeeping and so on, and that includes equipment. So uh, uh, whether that equipment on the jetty there is coming back from a, a, a deployment, uh, I'm not really sure. I have asked the Irish Ministry of Defence for uh, comment on it. Uh, but basically this equipment comes under what's called contingent owned equipment. And this is the equipment owned and bought by the United Nations member state, states for peacekeeping missions. So whenever they come back from a peacekeeping mission, they'll bring that material, that uh, uh, equipment back with them. Uh, it includes things like uh, uh, person, armoured personnel carriers, as you saw there, but also things like catering, uh, communications, medical uh, equipment, uh, field defence equipment, uh, metal detectors, other handheld equipment heavy engineering equipment and so on. And basically member states buy this and then get reimbursed at the going market rate by the United Nations uh, for having and maintaining that equipment. So uh, interested to, to see what the Irish Ministry of Defence comes back with on this, but still uh, questions to be asked about what is actually going on there. Um, I was, I was just going to add, Mike, and we, we are, I'm just going to say to our audience, we are aware that many of you are giving us information and asking us to report about the sudden influx into migrants who are coming into military or ex-military bases. That's occurring in Wales. We believe it's happening down there in Dover, I believe. Um, we are following this and we are asking questions. And interestingly enough, a retired policeman said in relation to policing in Trafalgar Square, that he didn't believe it would be possible for effectively foreigners to be brought into a policing role in UK. So we've paid attention to that as well. But we will say we are receiving very, very strange reports from people who are clearly seeing things happening in their locality, which they have never seen happen before, and they don't fully understand. So keep sending us the information and we'll do our best to look at it. Uh, but back to Ireland for a second then, we have this report from the uh, website Joe in Ireland, uh, which is sort of one of these uh, pseudo mainstream alternative websites. Uh, Senator calls on the army to assist Gardaí following large gatherings in Galway. So my point here is the reason that I've brought this up is because it's not just in the UK, we're seeing pressure for uh, the military and the police to be operating together uh, in these types of situations. And what, we're, what this is actually is internationalist policy, which David Ellis has been talking about for a, lot of, a long time now. It uh, is being seen most obviously with respect to the European Defence Union, um, where they are absolutely open about the fact, but equally NATO as well, open about the fact that they want to see a merging between civilian uh, law enforcement and policing and the military. And this is not a, a happy direction to be moving in. No, and, and we can ask lots of questions because we know in other areas, Mike, we, for example, we've got UN policy coming directly into UK policy matters like education in particular. So UNESCO policy coming straight into schools with almost no interface with the Department of Education. So. Is it possible we're now going to another layer where the UN is having influence over, we'll call it policing? This is a possibility. Okay, 
So what is Boris going to announce this afternoon? He says he's not going to announce anything, that today's live stream, he will be flanked by the Chuckle Brothers. Uh, today's live stream will be simply a, an update for everybody that there aren't going to be any big announcements. But I believe, Brian, you've been told something slightly different. Well, we're, we're being told that he's, he's going to announce something to do with a change in schools or at least school terms and the possibility of another major lockdown coming in from the beginning of November. Now, this is simply passed to us as, as comment. We pay attention to everything that people send to us. And over the years we've been operating, we've had these little tip-offs that have, have become true. So we'll say to people, if you are in contact with people who are, who are working at the Westminster end and you've got information, or indeed you're inside the parties themselves, Please, will you tell us more? Um, so uh, Boris will be giving a briefing with the two uh, scientific advisors there. Uh, and uh, well, the, what are the numbers? Uh, as of 9 a.m. yesterday, uh, another 7,143 cases in inverted commas. What that means is positive tests. Uh, 71 more people have died uh, within 28 days of testing positive for COVID-19. So of course, they're being put down as COVID deaths, whether or not they are COVID deaths. Uh, and that brings the total to 42,072. Um, although some people are suggesting that, that, that it's a bigger number, around 57,900. Um, this is going to be the 100th live stream that Boris, or at least the government, has done. So that's uh, something to cheer, I suppose. Uh, and uh, he's expected to speak after 5 p.m. Um, now, of course, what's going on in the rest of the country? Uh, well, empty streets, of course, because, well, let's start with Wales. Uh, as from 6 p.m. Uh, on Thursday, uh, Denbyshire, Flintshire, Conway, Wrexham, uh, people will be banned from mixing indoors with other households. Uh, they'll not be allowed to enter or leave uh, areas, those areas, so they have to stay within their locality without a reasonable excuse, such as work or education. Um, and, but travel will be uh, permitted through those areas to avoid cutting off uh, other areas. So uh, that uh, is going to affect 500,000 people and that brings the total number of people in Wales under lockdown to over 2 million. I think it's about 2.3 million. Uh, then of course we've got, uh, well, Liverpool. Well, Liverpool has been getting a bit of press over the last few days because uh, of course the curfew in pubs has been uh, 10 p.m. But the people of Liverpool haven't been terribly happy about that. So that, uh, they've been bailing out of the pubs at the end of the evening and uh, continuing the party out in the streets. That's not good enough, uh, says the, the mayor. So Liverpool is only days away from what is being one of these circuit breaker two week local lockdowns. Um, and uh, so the mayor was speaking to the Daily Telegraph. He said, for me, it's only a matter of time because the virus isn't able to be controlled in the city with the restrictions we have now. If we can have the severest measures of lockdown now, we may arrest the increase and start to bring it down by the end of October so that in the lead up to Christmas, we can get some normality. So people being blackmailed by Christmas. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we have the bungling Boris's uh, announcement of the Northeast, which uh, he wasn't able to get right and he wasn't able to um, express uh, what he meant by the rule of six with respect to the Northeast. Uh, but that's Northumberland, Newcastle, Gateshead, North and South Tyneside, Sunderland and uh, Durham, uh, which and that those restrictions come into force or came into force at midnight last night. Uh, and uh, so threats of fines for people that uh, that insist in on uh, not following the rules. Yeah, so the, the threats being really pushed, Mike, there was uh, some dissent, I think, from local councillors in the northeast who said that lockdown had come in, but nobody had bothered to talk to them. So this is getting very interesting because we got regionalisation of the country and the city states that you, you talk about, but the government at the moment doesn't even want to bother talking to them. It's a dictat straight from uh, um, Westminster. And... Perhaps we should just remind people that we've got four key elements to what's going on here. We've got the fusion doctrine that you've talked about. We've got the collaboration hub, which is this secretive unit inside government, which is ensuring that a policy that's spoken of one day is enacted on the streets as fast as possible. Some MPs are now picking up that bills are being introduced uh, on a Sunday and we're seeing things 
move very quickly to to implementation on the ground so we've got fusion we've got the collaboration hub we've got the use of malicious political applied behavioral psychology which is coming through the behavioral insights team and of course the sage unit itself that's very dangerous and the next one to add is the bbc and i think we should have a little film uh, clip here let's look at what the bbc is talking about and how they talk about it Good morning, welcome to Breakfast with Louise Minchin and Dan Walker. Our headlines for you at six o'clock, the number of people who have died as a result of the coronavirus pandemic around the world reaches one million. In stations, deserted city centres, have you been told to avoid the office? We are live from the home of Tramia Rovers this morning, who like many lower league clubs, face an uncertain future. And the Lake District could become home to the world's first paramedic. Look at this. Good morning from Ham House, where we're going to be talking about edible flowers. The number of people across the world who've died with coronavirus has passed one million, according to the tally kept by Johns Hopkins University in the United States. America, Brazil and India account for nearly half of that total. More than 33 million people have been infected by COVID since it emerged in China at the end of last year. Here's John McManus with more. It's been less than a year since the first cases of what became known as COVID-19 were first identified in Wuhan in China. The entire city was put into lockdown and the pictures of the measures adopted by the authorities to halt the virus's spread flew around the world. Now the number of deaths globally has hit one million. The number of confirmed infections is more than 33 million. The worst hit country? the United States, followed by Brazil and India. With more than 42,000 deaths, the UK is the fifth most affected country, though each government calculates its figures differently. This is a sombre moment when we realise not just the scale of the tragedy, but the number of personal tragedies that are accompanying that number. It's for everyone who's died, they've left a family, they've left a loved one, they've possibly destroyed people's, I mean, people have lost their livelihoods as a result. So the scale of the tragedy is even bigger than that staggering number. And as transmission rates continue to rise in some parts of the UK, Right, and I would say straight off that we did a little bit of editing on that Breakfast BBC clip in order to shorten it, uh, but we've certainly not uh, taken out any extra information because there certainly wasn't any. But what have we got? We've got the BBC simply declaring that we're in this immense pandemic. They're ramping up the fear by commenting on the fact that now over a million people have died worldwide. We'll have a look at the significance of that. And whilst they're ramping up the fear over a worldwide pandemic, they introduce such amazing subjects as football and eating flowers and men who are going to be flying paramedics. Now, we're going to suggest that what the BBC is doing there is deliberately playing with people's minds. You're frightening them on one hand with these unproven statistics, and then on the other hand, you're pushing in little snippets which are going to confuse people, essentially. So why do we need to be talking about football when the danger is supposedly deaths from COVID? Why do we need to be talking about eating flowers when we're talking about deaths from COVID? So this was an amazing BBC clip. There was no factual evidence put in there to support anything they were saying, certainly over COVID. And you were just presented with what is essentially a propaganda piece. This could have come straight out of North Korea. Um, just the government's view on what is happening with the pandemic. So let's have a look at some of the things that the BBC did show in that clip. So this is the verse one. We should all be terribly frightened, Mike. There's a million deaths worldwide and 33 million infections. But just one source for this claim from John Hopkins University, the BBC didn't interview anybody. The BBC didn't put any, any other sources of information up. Just these headlines clearly designed to give people the fear factor. Well, that, that's right. But of course, that number that John Hopkins University has collated that from national governments. And if we look at the way that our national government has collated its figures uh, and the, the, the terms of what, uh, on which they have decided that somebody has died of COVID rather than with 
COVID. Um, we find that our figures in this country are utterly unreliable. Uh, none of the figures from other governments can be considered reliable any, either, in my view. Right, so you've brought out analysis there. None of that analysis on the BBC. Straight statements of information which is not proven as factually correct is given out by the BBC as if it is correct. What else did the BBC do in that propaganda piece? Well, of course, they had this as part of the video clip. So one million COVID deaths, here is that being rammed into people's minds. And of course, what is the backdrop? The backdrop is video clip that hospitals can't cope. Hospitals are overwhelmed with COVID when we know that throughout the UK, that was not, that is not true and was not true during the heat of the crisis because NHS staff were saying that wards were empty and that the NHS was simply not providing treatment that it normally does. Here's the next bit, the BBC essentially praising the Chinese for their response, even though what the Chinese was doing was so bizarre that nobody could really understand it. This is one of the trucks that went round simply spraying vast quantities of uh, dangerous disinfectant in the air as if this was going to challenge a virus in a city. So the BBC just presents this to the audience as though it's factually of some significance, but in fact we're actually watching pure nonsense. And then we get the change reality from the BBC because of course we have a clip and comment, brief comment, oh, you're working from home. That's all normal now is essentially what the BBC was saying. Uh, you're going to be working from home. That's the way it is. You should just uh, really get on with it. So BBC utterly presenting the government's line. I'll put up the lady with the football again because, of course, the BBC loves this. If you want to preoccupy people, you're either going to give them uh, uh, well, it will be sex, I suppose, from the BBC and dark, unpleasant drama, or you're going to push football. But this was part of their morning uh, report, but thrown in with the fact you've got to be very frightened of, uh, of the uh, COVID deaths. So we're going to say this is applied behavioural psychology by the BBC. This is applied cognitive dissonance. And it fits totally with the fact that the British government has boasted since 2010 that it can change the way people think and behave using applied behavioural psychology. And we won't know it's being done. Well, we're going to say we do know it's being done and we're going to continue to warn people about it. So what the BBC didn't do is any sums. And I hope we've got this one correct, but we simply took the million as a proportion of the world's population and what you're saying is roughly 0.01282% of people have died. Uh, is that of great significance? We say no. Uh, this was how the BBC put the top um, death countries, and there's your 42,000, Mike, at the bottom, that the BBC is saying we should be very worried about. And those have come, as you say, from John Hopkins University. Um, I took this one from our world in data. This is world deaths in 2017. And we can see clearly at the top of the screen that cardiovascular diseases with 17.79 million people dying in 2017 and cancers 9.56 dying uh, puts COVID well down the pot. In fact, right down here, just above HIV and AIDS. So there's no reason for the population to be worried. But of course, the BBC isn't interested in world heart disease, cancer or respiratory disease. And why is that? Well, of course, what they're doing is um, using applied psychology to get the government's agenda into the hearts and minds of the population. Uh, well, we will, we will be commenting a bit more on that particular issue in one second, because it's actually extremely important as we move into this winter period. Uh, and the narrative that is beginning to be built around uh, this issue of heart disease, cancer, respiratory disease. Let's talk about that in a, mo in a moment. Right. Uh, we've got some comments about no graphics. I'm not quite sure what that is. Uh, I believe those images should have come up on screen okay. Um, they are very small, but you can check this out yourself by going to Our World in Data, where there is a great deal of 
statistics and data about the world and diseases and deaths in particular. Now, this man spoke in the BBC clip, Alexander Matho from the uh, British Red Cross. Uh, this is part of what he said, and I was just interested in a small piece where he stuttered. He said, this is a sombre moment when we realise not just the scale of the tragedy of COVID, but the number of personal tragedies that are accompanying that number. For everyone who has died, they've left a family, a loved one. Uh, they've possibly destroyed people's, uh, people have lost their livelihoods as a result. When you hear that uh, pause, that stutter, in what he's saying at that point. That's nothing to do with editing by the UK column. That was in the original BBC clip. And it was if he was starting to say that as a result of the um, uh, policies taken, people's lives have been destroyed. But then he corrects himself and goes back on, on script, encourage people to go and have a listen to that because it's very strange. Um, okay, now, of course, one of the big uh, things that happened over the uh first wave of the pandemic, if we can use that term, uh, was that the government bought a load of ventilators. Well, the uh, National Audit Office has now uh, released a report into their investigation in how government increased the number of ventilators available to the NHS in response to COVID-19. So if you want to see the, the full report, that's what you need to search for. Um, so thousands of ventilators bought to treat COVID-19 patients, uh, but unfortunately, the, most of them are still sitting in warehouses. Uh, because of a lack of demand. So uh, the Cabinet Office and the Department for Health uh, started ventilator programs. Each of them started their own ventilator programs on the basis that uh, getting as many mechanical ventilators as possible, as quickly as possible, was necessary to safeguard public health, is what the National Audit Office has been saying. Um, so they prioritised speed over cost, uh, and that means that they paid quite a bit over the normal price. So let's have a look at some of the the details of this then. Um, so first of all, £569 million spent on ventilators that have never been switched on, uh, Brian, largely. Um, that was uh, through the program set up by the Department for Health and Social Care and also the separate program set up by the Cabinet Office. Uh, that means that uh, as of August, uh, they had acquired 30,000 ventilators. That includes 9,100 already available to the National Health Service, uh, 2,600 purchased by the Department of Health, and 12,300 built through the Cabinet Office's Ventilator Challenge Programme. And then as of uh, September, just a few days ago, uh, around 2,150 of those 30,000 uh, have been dispatched to the NHS. The rest are sitting in warehouses unused, never switched on. We don't even know whether they work. Um, and this apparently, uh, this is because the anticipated demand did not materialise. My response to that, Mike, is if, if uh, to Tobias Elwood is saying what we've just seen him say, which is we now need to get the military involved, but the government can't even handle an order for ventilators on this scale, that is culpable failure in government. Uh, a role in a civil servant, if they can't sort out ventilators, never mind whether we should have used them or not, if they can't sort them out, we can't trust them on anything else they say around COVID. Well, but they, I mean, they did sort them out in the sense that they ended up buying 30,000 of the things, but they never delivered them because they were never needed. Well, if they were never needed, we know that they're lying over the whole thing. Absolutely. So, <laughs> so the cost then, well, it was an extra £10,000 for each ventilator compared to the normal uh, price of a ventilator. Now, you could argue that uh, companies that weren't normally manufacturing ventilators designed ventilators and therefore there would be an additional cost in research and development, Very, and they did it very quickly. So uh, that that's certainly the case, but nonetheless, uh, the justification isn't really there. So the Department of Health, uh, out of that 500 million, the Department of Health spent 292 million. Of course, we've got to add VAT onto this. Uh, and the Cabinet Office spent 277 million plus VAT. Um, and that, of course, nobody is questioning other than uh, a couple of headlines that I saw asking why these things were still sitting in, uh, in warehouses. Yeah, well, the UK column's reporting it, Mike, luckily. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so where does that take us? Uh, well, here's the NHS Confederation. Um, and uh, well, they are very concerned about what they're calling the NHS triple whammy. 
so that what is that then? The triple whammy is COVID-19, a backlog, and reduced capacity due to infection control measures. Now, of course, what the Confederation, the NHS Confederation is doing is demanding extra cash uh, for the NHS, but they're not making any particular statement about how this situation has arisen. Um, so uh, they uh, reported to NHS England, uh, they said that more investment was desperately needed. Uh, they said that ministers need to be honest and realistic about waiting lists for treatment. So what are the waiting lists? Well, currently 2 million patients have uh, waited longer than 18 weeks for treatment. Uh, this is the highest number since records began in 2007. Um, half the number of routine operations are only being, only half the number of normal routine operations are being done now today. So even though over the summer there's been a massive uh, decline in hospitalizations and uh, beds required for treating COVID-19, uh, the, the NHS has not been redeployed to dealing with the backlog because they're still only doing half the number of routine operations that they normally would be doing. Uh, cancer care is running at about three quarters capacity at this point in time when there's no other demand on the care system. Uh, once the uh, normal respiratory demands start coming on the care system in the winter, this is going to uh, cause problems once again. So COVID-19, the backlog, and reduced capacity due to infection control measures. This is the result of policy. It's not a result of the failure of the NHS for, that, that, that they aren't actually capable of providing the service, but the policy has been decided that the NHS will reorient in one direction alone to the detriment of everything else. And so effectively, the NHS has been switched off to a large degree. Um, that, that hasn't been resolved over the summer. It's only going to get worse again in the winter. And the government is going to push this narrative as we head into the winter um, that we've got to start protecting the NHS again. Uh, and a, a national lockdown, I think, yeah, in so, the run-up so to Christmas the, is inevitable. The government destroys the NHS with these policies and then puts out BBC propaganda that we've got to support the NHS, otherwise it's going to collapse. Uh, Policy designed to make it collapse. Yes. Yes. And I was given some statistics this morning about the number of, of um, women who've not been able to get breast uh, screening as a result of these failures in the NHS. It's extremely high. I will check on that figure and bring it out on Monday. Um, OK, so yesterday then uh, Boris announced, well, he was in Devon, he was in Exeter. Brian, we could have run up the road and said hello to him, but uh, sadly we didn't. Uh, but uh, Boris has set out plans to transform the training and skills system. He's going to make it fit for the 21st century economy. But the 21st century economy is all fourth industrial revolution, it's robotics and so on. We're not going to be using, uh, we don't need brickies. Uh, for that kind of thing because uh, all this stuff's going to happen automatically but he's, he's clearly extremely skilled himself there so the country's being shut down we can't look after people in the hospitals we've got the police out of control in some areas and boris johnson is getting out the propaganda that he's been to visit a local college right so basically what he's announced is that well currently people under the age of 23 qualify for fully funded qualifications at a technical level which is equivalent to, to A-level or a bit higher than that. Um, and uh, so now he's rolling this out to the rest of the population. If you um, don't have an A-level uh, qualification, you can go and get some uh, training at a college. They haven't announced what the range of training that's going to be available is yet, but this is going to be available after April. But what's really at the heart of this? Well, higher education loans will also be made more flexible so yeah. that you can get one of those. Uh, but I suspect that uh, this is mainly about keeping people off the jobless figures. Um, it's, a, it's an accounting exercise more than anything else. Yes, okay, they're going to spend a little bit of money uh, which might support uh, some of the further education and technical colleges uh, that exist around the country. But really, I'm not seeing anything from the government which, which is demonstrating uh, that the economy is going to be able to support uh, the people that are trained in this way. Yeah. So it's a short-term measure, it seems, uh, to keep people off the unemployment statistics.
you know, cynical effort to... Yes. Um, well, we'd like to say thank you to our viewers and listeners over the last few months in particular. We've, we've got a greatly increased engagement with you all. A lot of information coming in, a lot of very good emails. So I've just pulled out a couple. Uh, this is back to the subject of talking about the Trafalgar Square protest. As I understand it, their cadres, this is talking about the police, have been deployed on the streets of Paris during the Gilets Jaunes protest. Sorry, this is... Um, this is talking about um, the EU police, the Catalan independent protests and have a remit that allows them to also operate in affiliated nation. They've further been deployed in Afghanistan, the Balkans and the African continent deployments, which have been posted in their official website. I was a police officer trained in PSU tactics and deployed on public order duty. But in my time in that role, I can never recall ever being deployed to attack harmless civilians in the way those Metropolitan Police PSU officers were last Saturday. Now, I think these emails carry some weight because people, professional people, retired who are now looking back and saying they don't like what's going on. Um, it goes on to say, I've worked alongside Met officers when my force lent mutual aid to other forces. And although there were the occasional big hipper type, hitter, sorry, big hitter types who thrive on wanting to crack a few heads, and I can say not all of those sentiments are exclusive to the Met. For the most part, I believe that any right-thinking current or former police officer would be horrified by what went down last week. The deployment of batons is a separate and quite thorny issue. However, when, when to deploy and use the baton is a matter of officer discretion and head strikes are never encouraged unless it's under extremely serious life-threatening circumstances, none of which were apparent in the stills and video I saw in your programme or in other social media reports. Regards, Will. We did actually get a full name, but we've decided to cut that to uh, Will. But really good to see that these professional people are now responding to the UK column reports. Uh, let's go on a bit here. Um, and I'm, I'm sorry, I've probably... Uh, I've... Um, What's the word? I've just mixed up the opening of these two emails. So the first one that we've just covered was to do with the specialist police units. And now we're into the subject of um, Eurogen 4. Um, this one says, after watching Monday's broadcast, particularly the coverage of the last Saturday's peaceful progress protest in Trafalgar Square, the subsequent police action and the description of police officers of Eastern European appearance, might they have been Eurogen 4? Okay, so we don't know, but we're very interested in what people have to say. Now, um, this is very, very interesting. We're taking these as genuine emails, and I have spoken to the Met Police earlier today to see whether we can get confirmation, but let's see what we were given. This is an email that was sent to Cressida Dick. We're sending you a video that was captured during peaceful protests in London yesterday. In the video, the mass lines of police appeared to charge at the peaceful protesters in an unprovoked manner, knocking one man unconscious. And there's then link through to uh, information on a Facebook page. As usual, this did not make the mainstream news. We do not support the language used against the police by the person in the video. Could you give me an opinion why this happened in a peaceful protest in a democratic country? We're fully supportive of the police upholding the law, but this behavior is not acceptable in our eyes. Now, what was nice about this uh, email to Cressida Dick is it's very simple, it's short, it's measured, it's polite. Let's have a look at the response that uh, came back. So good morning, thank you for your email. I apologize for the delay in responding. It's been an unusually busy period. In the reference to the events in Trafalgar Square on the 19th of September, the, uh, the uh, legislation provides exemption from the COVID restrictions to political organizations engaged in peaceful and organized protests, as long as they submit proper risk assessments and have sensible safety precautions in place. In the case of this protest, the risk assessment was not endorsed by the local authority, which made the assembly unlawful. Officers reacted, sorry, officers repeatedly attempted to persuade the organizers and those involved to disperse in line with the national four E's, engage, encourage, explain, enforce. 
policy, but we were met with extreme hostility and violence when doing so. As a consequence, those officers were required to use force. Officers are required to individually justify every use of force in the course of their duties. And this is the best bit. Whilst the right to peaceful and lawful protest is a fundamental democratic right to be respected, the level of violence directed at the officers on the day was wholly disproportionate and utterly unacceptable. Thank you for your email to the Commissioner's private office. Kind regards, Dave Blair, staff officer to the Commissioner. Now, we're taking those, these emails as, uh, as true. Uh, we have taken the steps to try and speak to the Met Police and in particular to speak to this gentleman. So we're going to say at the moment this is an alleged response from him. Um, but I think it's one that requires us to think very carefully because we've seen two demonstrations in Trafalgar Square. In both of them, uh, it went from peaceful interaction with the police to the police acting in a very brutal manner. But this man says, well, the trouble was it was you nasty civilians caused the problem. Yeah, I mean, I'll just clarify when you say that both emails are true, I, mean, I think you mean genuine, because genuine, of course yes. his his email was lies from start to finish. It, it <laughs> looks at at least at first yeah, view, the, because the, the, I have yet to see any video from last weekend that demonstrated uh, a level of violence directed at the officers, which was wholly disproportionate and utterly unacceptable. There was yeah. no violence until that crowd was charged and the violence came from the police. That's absolutely right, Mike. And this is why we wanted to make sure we're absolutely correct on these emails. If you send in emails to us, it is helpful that you actually give us the transmission data so that we can see that those emails have gone to and fro. But I believe by the language used in these two texts, uh, this, these are genuine emails. And we uh, will be sending an email to the Met this afternoon asking some further comments about this exchange. Mm. OK, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. And just uh, briefly, uh, just before we came on air, uh, Ian Crane sent me a message to say that tickets for AV 11.1 would be available by the end of play today. So for Friday's news programme, we'll have details of, of speakers and so on. But if you want to find out more, probably best to have a look at the morning in the morning at alternativeview.co.uk. Yeah. OK, what's next then? Uh, well, talk radio. And uh, let's have a look at, at this because uh, Mark Dolan cuts up his face mask live on air is what talk radio was uh, tweeting out. Uh, a week or so ago, or well, actually, sorry, at the start of the month, September the 4th. If you want to save lives and get the country back on track, the only option is to uh, is to get back uh, to normal. The first step to achieving that is binning these wretched masks. Well, in fact, he said a little bit more than that. He said uh, these wretched, god-awful, damned, blinking, uncomfortable, scientifically empty, useless masks. Um, well, Ofcom received 36 complaints about Mark Dolan's programme on the 4th of September. Uh, and uh, most of these uh, were accusing it of being, uh, or accusing him of making irresponsible comments made on the use of face masks. So 36 complaints uh, on that. And I just thought we would just remember, of course, there are 24,500 complaints um, on the issue of uh, Black Lives Matter propaganda on uh, uh, Britain's Got No Talent, or whatever it's called. Um, and uh, the... Uh, so, of course, Ofcom decided that there was no case to answer in the case of uh, diversity, diversity's dance on Britain's Got Talent. Um, and so we wait to see what happens with these complaints uh, to Ofcom over Mark Dolan's uh, comments about face masks and see whether that, uh, see what the response is there. So everything people are doing at the moment to ask for these risk assessments on the wearing of face masks, this is definitely having an impact because we're now seeing that the state is getting, getting panicky and I think your next uh, segment is going to reinforce that, actually. Well, I mean, if anybody, uh, if, if assuming everybody agrees with what Brian said earlier about the BBC and so on and, the, and their, their uh, lack of taking in any alternative narratives, well, the situation isn't going to get any better under the new director general. Here he is, uh, Tim Davey. He was given evidence uh, by video link uh, to the uh, 
Culture Media and Sport, Digital Culture Media and Sport Select Committee uh, yesterday. Uh, and uh, well, what was he saying? Uh, if anybody that's working for the BBC, if they want to work for the BBC, they, they could be told to suspend their Twitter accounts. He said, uh, where we're able to take disciplinary action, where we're able to take people off Twitter, uh, I know people want to see hard action on this. Uh, if people want to work for the BBC, uh, they could be told to suspend their uh, accounts. He said uh, that the, he was prepared to take the appropriate disciplinary action all the way to termination for those that breach impartiality rules. And of course, when we're talking impartiality with respect to the BBC, uh, that means BBC impartiality, which means nobody with an alternative narrative is allowed to get a, a word in edgeways. Yeah. Um, and uh, he, uh, he said that uh, news and current affairs would have a high bar um, for impartiality, that uh, there's a certain standard expected of all BBC staff, however. Uh, I think this is about, sorry, I don't think this is about banning people on social media, by the way. We must be out there, he says, so long as they're giving the correct narrative. Uh, and he went on to say, if you want to be an opinionated columnist or a partisan campaigner on social media, then that's a valid choice, but you shouldn't be working for the BBC. Yeah, so so propaganda machine complete. It's so it's so complete that you can't have any other opinion. You can only agree to the BBC line, otherwise you can't work there. When he says terminate, I presume that's terminate the job, Mike, because uh, you had me really worried for a moment that perhaps he was going for a, a very very uh, cull, uh, curt solution. Uh. Um, more trouble in schools, and this has come into the UK column, and I think it's very significant. Uh, two mums discussing uh, what's been happening with children at school. Absolutely furious. Myself and two other parents, uh, also on here, this Facebook, have been informed by our children that a presentation was held at their senior school today. Some of it was acted out by teachers in sketches. The children were told not to listen to any fake news about masks and not to believe anything unless it's on BBC or Sky News. Anything shared on social media is conspiracy theories and should be ignored, even if it's claimed from scientists. They showed a video of people talking about things like masks don't work, they're just a mind control trick, and said that was the kind of people they were talking about. Apparently they said anyone who thinks like that are far-right extremists and terrorists. And if you think like that, you're a terrorist. My daughter's own words to me uh, were that it was brainwashing, mum, total brainwashing. And just to finish this off, the school told the children that if they hear anyone talking like that or hear things like that talked about at home, then they should report it to the student support services or to the National Counter-Terrorism Office. They actually said to them, if anyone in your family has a, a minority view that the mainstream don't share, then they are far right. Uh, one of the teachers decided to take it one step further and tell her class that everyone should take the vaccines as they are perfectly safe. Nice to know she clearly has information about something that not even top scientists are aware of, as it's not even been produced yet, as far as I'm aware. We're all fuming. If ever there was a case of brainwashing, indoctrination and far-right ideology, then this looks like it to me. So fascinating to read that, Mike, after your um, statement there by the boss of the BBC. Uh, you can't have a social media account because that makes you a right-wing terrorist. And we just remind people of the 30th of May 2019. This was the Express. Patriotism is a sign of racism and right-wing extremism the British Army document claims. And this was a matrix document. We did show it at the time, uh, but it was indicators and warnings for extreme right-wing people. And uh, we referred to this, refer um, extremists and right-wing people, refer to political correctness as some left-wing or communist plot. Uh, they make inaccurate generalizations about the left or the government. And down the bottom, they involve colleagues in closed social media groups. So this uh, agenda is real. It's been pushed around at the heart of the government for many years and indeed into the military. Uh, the same military, Mike, that we're now starting to see unleashed on the British streets. Yes.
Now, in the meantime, of course, the attack on veterans continues. So uh, this is the sun. Pursuit ends. This is really good news, according to the sun. No more British soldiers to face prosecution over bloody Sunday, Sunday killings almost 50 years ago after 200 million pound public inquiry. And the sun saying prosecutors said they will take no further action against 15 British paratroopers in connection with the deaths of 13 civil rights marchers in 1972. The decision not to prosecute follows a year-long review, multiple investigations and a decade-long public inquiry which cost £200 million. Soldier F, the only soldier to face charges, will continue to face trial, but as 15 former, uh, but 15 former paratroopers who were uh, reinvestigated last year uh, will not be prosecuted, the Public uh, Prosecution Service of Northern Ireland said. Uh, and the Public Prosecution Service of Northern Ireland added, apparently, the test for prosecution was not met on evidential grounds. Now, uh, this is uh, important because, uh, of course, uh, if you were watching uh, the first David Ellis report, uh, Lawfare, uh, which was uh, out on the 30th of uh, July, um, David was speaking to Dennis Hutchings, who is himself uh, facing uh, an attempted murder charge in Northern Ireland over uh, events that took place while he was deployed over there uh, as a 21-year-old or whatever it was. Now, uh, the point that Dennis Hutchings was making is that there are actually two or three hundred uh, former serving military personnel facing the potential for prosecutions, not just these 15 or 16 uh, with respect to Bloody Sunday. Um, and so what we have here is one man being pro the prosecution continuing on that, 15 others, uh, the prosecution not continuing. Uh, and what that, the effect that that seems to be having is that, that many people within the veterans community that are potentially facing uh, prosecution um, are reluctant to uh, speak up at this point because, you know, they're uh, perhaps hopeful that, that they will not see this regime uh, continue to a point where they are uh, in court themselves. So it, it's absolutely divide and conquer uh, effort here. Of the vets, of of the veterans, and uh, and they do need support. So, so uh, I would encourage that. But do watch uh, David Ellis's program and share that if you haven't seen it yet. And we'll just add why why are the government so frightened of the veterans in this country? Because as a group of people, they're into millions of people plus their families, and the government know that veterans have an inherent sense of right and wrong. And the government of occupation is worried those veterans are going to see through uh, the malicious policies that are coming into place. So I think this uh, divide and rule of the veterans is another malicious policy from Boris's um, government, Mike. Yeah, absolutely. Now, are we going to war? Well, uh, maybe this gives us a clue. This is uh, Air Force uh, magazine in the United States. Uh, headline is, with an eye on China, Reaper drones train for maritime war. So what they're saying is MQ-9 Reapers, a workhorse drone of America's two decades counterterrorism fight in the Middle East and Africa, want to show they're get, getting a second wind. And it goes on to talk about the fact that uh, Reapers are old technology, that they're not viewed by the uh, US military as being uh, the front line or the, the top uh, uh, technology anymore. Uh, and so uh, this uh, particular uh, group who are flying these aircraft are trying to justify their existence. So they're trying to refocus uh, on the Pacific arena. Um, and uh, so they're saying it incorporates maritime interdiction capabilities, it incorporates a lot more major contingency operation capabilities, air interdiction, it reinvigorates our strike coordination and reconnaissance capability, and it also increases our combat search and rescue capabilities. So they're trying to justify their existence. Uh, but they've been uh, criticised that perhaps it's too old to really face off against uh, Russia and China. So what did they decide to do? Well, you won't be able to see that particularly uh, well in that, in that image. But if you look on their arms, they've got uh, patches there. Uh, and uh, well, the Chinese, as anybody would imagine, uh, took a bit of offence at this. And they are starting to ask, uh, is the US military suggesting that it is preparing for war with China? Because the patch shows the military uh, the, the Reaper drone, sorry, flying over China rather than over the Middle East. So that is uh, that is it flying over China with the uh, crosshairs on China. And, and with the death head, am I looking at uh, Yes, that? absolutely. Right. Yes, so, yes. so if this was the badge for, you know, from Nazi Germany, we'd be shouting, my goodness, this is the SS squads in action. And yet we've, we've got a death, death's head badge imposed over the top of a nation state. Uh, yes, indeed. So, you know, on one hand, you might say, well, this is a, a squadron that's uh, trying to justify its existence and, and 
and the optics are they're saying that they are capable of, of dealing with China. But on the other hand, uh, this this exercise and everything that went this with this exercise was given approval by uh, the US Air Force and therefore that includes the badge that these guys wore. Uh, so the, 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 the intention here is absolutely clear. Uh, and I think the Chinese are probably right to be a bit offended by it. Yeah, I would say so. Uh, but don't worry, Brian, because uh, even if we end up in war uh, with China, we have uh, we have exercise joint warrior going on, which is being led by HMS Queen Elizabeth. So um, our uh, our aircraft carrier is out uh, in the sea with its F-35s. They're being they're practicing with them this week, uh, and so we don't need to worry about the Chinese at all. How many aircraft are on board? I've forgotten, about six, is it, or seven? Uh, yes, and those are mostly US uh, aircraft as well. Certainly were. We need to do a bit of checking up no, on no, that. No, they no, still, they still are. So this oh, is right. Exercise <laughs> Joint Warrior. It's taking place for 11 days off the uh, coast of northwest Scotland. Uh, and uh, 11 nations, uh, 6,000 personnel, 81 aircraft. Not all of them are F-35s, of course. 28 ships, two submarines. UK, USA, Netherlands, Portugal, Be Portugal, Belgium, Canada, France, Denmark, Norway, and Lithuania. I'm sure the Chinese are probably shaking in their boots. It's incredible, isn't it? But um, luckily, there's enough troops still to fight COVID as well. So absolutely. Okay. Well, we better end there. Thank you to our viewers and listeners for joining us. We're in very serious times. If you're an overseas viewer, you can see that Boris Johnson's government of occupation has destroyed democracy in UK serious things coming now by the day. How can we stop it? Exposure and get challenging those people in authority who are finally showing signs of waking up. And I'll just say a big thank you to our audience in America. We know you're there. We know you're growing uh, in different parts of the country. But thank you for the communication. Thank you also to uh, people living in Italy who are now in contact with us. So it's very interesting to see these communications come in. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we will be back at the same time on Friday. Bye-bye.